Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part through the generous support of Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation at aaronv.com, A-A-R-O-N-V.com, making connections for life for your automation and smart home needs in North and Central Florida. Previously on Jimmy Akin's Mysterious world. From the 1970s to the 1990s, the U.S. Defense Department conducted a psychic spying program that came to be known as Stargate. It was headquartered out of Fort Meade, Maryland, and relied on a psychic ability called remote viewing. One of the psychic spies who served at Fort Meade was Major Bill Ray. For a time, he also served as commander of the unit. So who is Major Ray? What role did he play in Stargate? And what can he tell us about remote viewing? You're listening to episode 191 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about Major Bill Ray and his most dramatic remote viewing experiences. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Akin. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. Psychic spy Major Bill Ray recently sat down with Jimmy for an extensive interview. In this episode, we'll be hearing about some of Major Ray's most dramatic remote viewing experiences. And yes, they do involve aliens. So what did Major Ray see? How does it continue to affect him? And what other experiences has he had? Well, that's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. Jimmy, what should we say to begin with? Once again, I'm very glad to be able to do this interview, and I want to thank Paul Smith for putting me in touch with Bill Ray. Paul was another one of the Stargate remote viewers. Uh, Remote viewing is a reported psychic ability that is said to allow you to pick up impressions about a distant target, which would be very useful for spying purposes, which is why the U.S. was interested in it. I had the opportunity to interview Paul Smith back in episodes 156 and 157, so definitely go back and listen to those if you haven't already. Last episode, we ended on a cliffhanger where Bill was just about to tell us about one of the most dramatic remote viewing experiences he ever had. The target was a massive, simultaneous UFO abduction in the Gulf of San Matias, Argentina. And as we'll hear, the fear Major Ray experienced in viewing that event was so great that he still feels visceral fear today when he thinks about it. But nevertheless, he's going to read us his original remote viewing results of the experience. We'll also be hearing about his experiences viewing Roswell and the Ark of the Covenant. We discussed Roswell back in episode 49, so you can go back and listen to that and hear what conclusions I reach based on the evidence I found. And we'll definitely be doing an episode on the Ark of the Covenant in the future. Are there particular things that people should be listening for in today's interview? Early in the interview, he mentions or we mentioned a few people that we talked about last episode. One of them was Skip Atwater, who played a role in helping start the Stargate program and who recruited Bill into it. As we'll hear, he was the one who tasked Bill with viewing the mass UFO abduction. The second person was Lieutenant General William Odom, who was critical of the Stargate program and opposed it. As we'll hear, the viewers at Fort Meade had a bit of fun referring to General Odom, uh, bending his name from Odom into Odoom and referring to his supporters as Odomites. 
The third person was Ed Dames, who worked in the Fort Meade unit and did a little bit of remote viewing for it, though he mainly worked as a monitor for the regular viewers. Ed was known for tasking people with exotic targets like aliens. He's also known for making ominous doomsday-like predictions. In fact, Art Bell took to referring to him as Dr. Doom. Fortunately, these predictions haven't had a high fulfillment rate. Bill and I talked about Ed last episode, and we'll hear more about him today. Not all of our listeners may be familiar with remote viewing, so where should they go for more information? We've discussed remote viewing a number of times on the show, uh, but basically, if you want an introduction to it, go back to episodes 102 and 103. We cover the basics in those, including looking at the scientific evidence. So you can make up your own mind whether you find it credible. We also look at it from the faith perspective. And for even more on psychic abilities and the faith perspective, you may wish to listen to episodes 105 and 106, which are on St. Thomas Aquinas and the Occult. As we discuss in those episodes, even saints and doctors of the church, like St. Augustine and St. Thomas Aquinas, believed that God built weak natural abilities into human nature that today we would classify as psychic abilities. So listen to 105 and 106 for a detailed look at the faith perspective on psychic and other unusual phenomena. Excellent. So before we get to your interview with Major Ray, we'd like to take a moment to thank our patrons who make this show possible, including Jonathan R., Father Andrew K., Christy W., Raymond L., and Jasperg357. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part by Catechism Class, a dynamic weekly podcast journey through the Catechism of the Catholic Church by Greg and Jennifer Willits. It's the best book club, coffee talk, and faith study group all rolled into one. Find it in any podcast directory. And without further ado, here's part two of our interview with Major Bill Ray. Another thing that happened in April of 1985, specifically on April 7th, was you had a very powerful viewing session. Uh, yes. What can you tell me about that and what happened? Well, I, I have the summary of that here. And uh, this was done, it wasn't done for a customer. Uh, Skip Atwater uh, had, a, had an interest in some that uh, that's about for one of a better term, flying saucers. Uh, and but we by had the way, done, we, we should mention by customer, we mean another agency like the yes. CIA or the Drug Enforcement Agency or someone like that. We're not that, talking yeah. a person walking in off the street. No, no. A, a customer was, yeah. Uh, National Security Council, FBI, CIA, perhaps a, a, a particular collection agency. But uh, it, it, this was. Uh, it was something that Joel McMoneagle had worked it before, and I think uh, one other viewer had worked it before. And uh, so uh, I had no idea what it was going to be. We did it CRB, we started off. And uh, it, it started, let me look at my, yes, the, uh, it started at 8.17, and it finished at 10.35. Uh, 1985. It was a uh, which is almost three hours. Oh, yeah, two and a half. And after that, I did a summary, and then we went and did 
CRD, we did a stage five where you interrogate uh, certain words come in and you can find, say you say uh, uh, alien, okay? And that's the word that comes in CRB. Now, there may be 40 words that all came or feelings that came together that made you say alien. So you can interrogate your subconscious to find out what made you say alien. And uh, so we did stage five, and then I did ERB. And uh, if you have time, please, me, I, could, I can read it to you here. Okay. This is. Uh, we went CRB, geographical coordinates, took it, ended up in the middle of an ocean. Took it three times to make sure there was nothing else around, did stage ones. Then uh, skipped, uh, we went 10 miles to the north, something should be visible. Six miles to the west, something should be visible. And I, I picked up land. So we were in a bay or something or someplace where there was land around with a large body of water. And then uh, we were sure where I was, Skip moved me in time. From uh, 1985 uh, to 1981, things should be perceivable at this location. And this is what I picked up. On an ocean a short distance from a coast in 1981, there is a ship. This ship has the military feeling. It is smaller than a destroyer. There are only men on board. They are wearing clean white uniforms, maybe even shorts. The men are young for the most part and are athletic. They are on a routine mission. There is a second group of people involved. They are in a large, shiny, metallic silver craft that looks like this, and it's kind of a, a, a triangle shape. Uh, the second group of people are unemotional, programmed, ordered, disciplined, interlinked, interconnected, interrelated, and intertwined. They are cold and unpleasant. They are lean, sterile, and white, not other identified. Uh, they are returning and gathering, also not further identified. I get no impression of any sex difference among these people. A shadow falls across the boat. The water is tossing and rising. It looks like the sea is boiling. There is mist, vapor, and steam around the boat. The mist is damp and is of several colors. I do not recall what the colors are, and I feel that is not important. There is complete panic and confusion on the boat. Men are screaming and hollering, and many are running aimlessly. Others are terrified and screaming, but remain where they are at the stations. The ship smells of insanity and fear. No one knows what to do. No one can take charge. There is a feeling, not a color, of red and black, like a photograph negative. I cannot explain that any better. There is a tremendous feeling of gravity. Skin is pulled tight across the cheekbones, and I have difficulty moving my feet off the desks, off the deck. I believe all the turmoil is being caused by the cold, unemotional group of people in the strange-shaped craft which is hovering over the ship. After a time, the strange-shaped craft rises up and goes west over the land, and all becomes quiet. In the morning, it is brisk. There is a salty, clean wind blowing from the north. I believe the ship is floating in the water, quiet and empty, but no living person on board. 
There is a feeling of entering the craft. The entering is forced and temporary. The attributes, and I'm, I'm stage fighting it, words. The attributes of the entering are several and previous, up and light, is resistant and is not resistant. The subject of the entering is experimental and learning. The topics are ongoing, biological, developing, encompassing, scientific, social, material, research, categorizing, cataloging, and developing. There is something important underwater here, something to do with bubbles and spears. The underwater is oblong, metallic, hidden, sensitive, secretive, selective, colony. The subject is life and ecology. Its topics are deep, dark, sustaining, nourishing, acrobatic, elongated, and saving. Now, I've yeah, had five combat tours. I've jumped out of airplanes. I've been a ranger, mountain climb, propelled down mountains. I've been afraid a lot in my life. And when I think back on those times, I can think, yeah, I was afraid then, but I don't feel fear. Reading this, I'm afraid again. And anytime I think back to this, the fear is still there. It's not a memory, it's fear. So this is this is uh, such a powerful experience. This particular viewing was so powerful for you that you still feel the fear just remembering it or reading about it even today. Yes. There was a different kind of fear and insanity there. It was it wasn't fear, fear. It was terror, panic, insanity. So it seems like now let me see if I can summarize uh, for the listener. Um, you perceive you were targeted on a particular patch of water in 1985 and yes. you discovered it was in a bay somewhere. Did, did you later learn the real world location of this? Because of yes. course you were blind uh, at the time. It's the Bay of St. Augustine. It's, it's the Gulf of St. Uh, the Gulf of St. Mateus, Argentina. Okay. Uh, it's also uh, that the the ship was a uh, minesweeper. I called it smaller than a destroyer. It's a minesweeper. There's also rumored to be a uh, reports of an underwater uh, UFO base. There. I can't speak to that, but there was something under the water that also Joe McMonagle also got. And since Joe also picked up the fear and Joe also got the colors, which the, the colors were important, but they they were not really colors, emotions, whatever they were. Yep. Okay. So you you saw this spot in the ocean. You learned where it was. Uh, eventually, you learned where it was in the real world, but you determined it was in a bay or something or a gulf. Yes. You go back to 1981. You see this military vessel, which turned out to be a minesweeper, having an encounter with an unusual flying object that seemed to yes. have people on board, but unusual people. They didn't seem yeah. to have sexes. There weren't didn't seem to be male or female. Uh, they no. um they were very controlled and interlinked and on some kind of a mission that seemed to be involving research. They're causing the ocean around the minesweeper to boil or churn, and then you sense that the people who were on the minesweeper 
are no longer there or yeah, at they're least being are, sucked up. they're being sucked up and they're left without anybody on the ship. And there's also some kind of underwater similar facility or thing there that also seems to be involved in research. Is that yes. an accurate summary? That is. And you say that Joe McMonagall also viewed this and got similar results. Joe and, yeah, and, and I think there were two others. As I recall, Skip got this all together. Not Joe, so I think Fern, Fern Gavin was one of the people. Later was the director of the project. Right. Uh, and we talked about it because it's, uh, have a, I think, probably to avoid PTSD or something. This, this is the only project that the only site I've ever worked that they had trouble getting me to the site. I uh, did the ship and did, did the morning did the sh and they had to move me back and skip had to move me back and forth until I, I finally got on target. I should mention for the listeners. Well, Paul so worked the target, but had a, go ahead. I, I should mention uh, for the Paul listeners. Paul also tried to work. No. I'm sorry. That's okay. Uh, I should mention for the listeners that uh, it's sometimes reported that if there's something at a site that a remote viewer does not want to see or does not want to experience, that they can have difficulty acquiring the target. For example, some remote yeah. viewers are asked at times to like view crime scenes, and not all remote viewers want that. They may be tasked with a crime scene and be blind to it, and then their subconscious is reported to say, wait there's something really bad here i don't want to view this and they have trouble yep. making contact with the site you had something similar to that in this case yes and that was the, the only time it ever happened uh we would give we would give viewers difficult targets ugly targets because yeah as practice targets because in real life you're going to to view it one of them was uh, either dachau or Auschwitz or one of the prison camps uh we uh that and viewers would acquire it and work but it was difficult to get them through it we had one viewer who uh, whose name i won't mention who went in and basically had no problem at all going through the ashes and was yeah just uh, very strange interesting but Yes. So after an experience like that, and we're going to talk a little bit more about unusual exotic targets like aliens, right. but based on your experience viewing this, by the way, before I forget, has the Argentine military mentioned that they had an abandoned minesweeper? Have they made that public? I don't know. I don't think so. Okay. I, I think there's there's uh, you can find articles on the Bay of San Mateus on, on the Gulf of San Mateus the underwater uh, UFO base has been speculated quite a bit. I don't think that the uh, the Argentine Navy has, has made that a fact. I don't know where Skip got his information to target us on that, but it, it came from someplace. Okay. Um... In late 1985, you became the commander of the unit. Yes. And I wanted to ask what running it was like. One of the stories I've discovered from this period now, at this point, Center Lane had closed when it was under the yes. Army. And it was in a, for about a year or a little more, it was called Dragoon Absorb. And it was being transferred to the DIA, which is yes. the, Pentag the Pentagon's intelligence service. Yes. And... During this transition period, y'all were not really allowed to do 
hardly any operational missions. And so you had to kind of content yourself with doing training missions just to keep in practice yes. over this period. And I can imagine it wasn't really great for morale to not be able for a year to do what you're there to do. And I found uh, a memorandum that was written by somebody at the time. I think it may have been Lynn Buchanan, but I'm not 100% sure of that. But he wrote this memo as a kind of way of keeping up morale at the time. And here's here, I'm going to read a little bit from this memo. Yes. The continuing saga of the Cyforce 5, this week's thriller, impending O'Doom. As we rejoin our heroes, we find that disaster has taken its toll among the ranks of the Cyforce 5. The loss of their comrade Tom has seriously affected their ability to save the world from the encroaching mundanity of those dreadful enemies of forward thinkers everywhere, the Odomites, after General yes. Odom. Good Odom, yes. As our story opens, Bill, the fast-talking take-charge commander of the force, is briefing the crew on the training schedule. And then Quoting Bill, the yeah. commander, I know you all want to get on with fighting the Odomites and saving humanity everywhere, but we are strategically prevented from working right now. And this is a good time for training. Like my idol, General Custer, used to say, proper training and good leadership. That's what wins battles. Yes. Well, <laughs> General Custer is, is a great example for anything. I, 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 I still refer to him probably a couple times each day when people say it can't get any better. I say it's what you, it can't get any worse. That's what General Custer said. I, I don't think it was a year. There was a period of time and uh, not to get too far into the weeds, mm -hmm. but uh, intelligence had different pots of money. Um, the government has different pots of money and, and intelligence uh, collection Funds are generally from an FCI pot, foreign counterintelligence. So we, yeah. Now we had been kicked out of the foreign counterintelligence funds about 1983 because a staffer from a senator whose name I won't mention believed we were doing the work of the devil. Yeah, there was no question that we were collecting information, but we were doing the work of the devil. So they kicked us out of, we could not, Congress, based on this staffer, would not let us use FCI funds, Foreign Counterintelligence. Now, INSCOM, Intelligence and Security Command, we were part of it, was funding us under SNI funds, Security and Investigations. So, but out of hide, we weren't, the money wasn't allocated, it was allocated to them. So uh, that was one of the problems when we went over to DIA. Now, I probably can't get in trouble anymore, but one of the things I did, we were doing training problems. But what I did was I went around, and I'd been in the intelligence field quite a while, and talked to my friends in the collection units and said, you know, if you have a training target, do you like us to work? We could do that for you. And so we were working training targets and giving the results to uh, the units. So, uh, so it was kind of a workaround. It was real world. It kept morale up. It kept us. At, I think if all you do is training targets, you're going to lose interest. So, uh, yeah. And 
DIA was none the wiser. <laughs> so you found a way to actually provide some useful intelligence to people by yes. calling it a training target. Yes. And we treated it like a training target and then provided them the results. So uh, I think uh, I think statute of limitations has worn off and they can't prosecute me. And I'm old anyhow. Life in prison doesn't scare me anymore. I'm pretty sure it'll be okay. Um, yeah. What uh, so what were like the good and the bad points of 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 commanding the program? How was it as an assignment? Uh, well, uh, I have eight years to command, two years with the uh, with, with the Stargate, uh, probably another 12, 16 years being the special agent in charge of an office. And in some ways, this was the most challenging uh and it was like 12 people. It, you know, it's not not a huge. And we were all in one place. You know, and, uh, but it, it. You guys had two. There was a lot of buildings you were working out of. Yes. The, 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 which we never got painted. I, I'm still signed for them and they tore them down in the meantime, I think. But uh, I went. I was uh, back. We were still with the intelligence and security command, the army. I was down one day, uh, and we were in the process of, of transferring over, and somebody was talking. So, what did Paul do last week? I said, well, so he, and we worked him on a biological lab in Siberia a couple times, and then there, there was a uh, uh, listening devices and a foreign embassy, and then we worked him against Sam. Yeah. Well, how long did that take? So, you know, maybe two hours a session. So, yeah, maybe 20 hours. Well, what did he do the other 20 hours? You know, it was like, you know, you're cheating the government. And what we basically do is this, this we sat around talking or you helped somebody else or you monitored. So it, it, but it was, you know, if you don't work you know, 70 hours a week for the military, then you really you really are getting over. And uh, yeah. another thing was we were a special access program. Uh, you had to be read on to the program to be aware of its existence. So most people didn't know we existed. They they knew something was weird going on in two buildings in the woods. But if they don't know you exist, then how can they target you? How can they give you a task to go collect intelligence for them? Yeah. Right. So there's a kind of built-in limitation of because of there, the special access program, you won't get as much business as if you were more freely known. And then you get right. asked, well, why don't you have viewers viewing constantly during the workday? Well, okay, yes. we're special access. Yeah. And uh, Dr. Jack Perone, who was number one scientist in, in at DIA, who ended up science and technology. He, uh, we set up a monthly meeting at the Pentagon and I'd go down with Jack and then we would tell him what we worked on the last month, give him some examples. And then we would take taskings. The problem was that I was there. So if you tasked me, I couldn't work on it. So I'd have to leave and you, Jack. Take you were it. no longer blind. Then I was I was no longer blind. In fact, I I don't know how many times somebody came up to me and said, "Bill, we're we're really worried about what's going on in Afghanistan with the Russians. Can you do this for us?" And I would say the unit can do it now, but I can't. Mm -hmm. 
So, yeah, uh, it was a whole different ball game. And Engel uh, was yeah, very much into pampering the viewers. Even though he scared the heck out of us, he was into pampering the viewers. Uh, since then, that's that's not necessary anymore. But it, it was uh, so uh, things that uh, yeah that that in a regular unit you would have dressed differently. You handle with kid gloves in the and at Stargate. Okay. Now yeah. after. Th- after the transfer to DIA was complete, the program became yes. known as Sunstreak. Um, it wouldn't be known by its most famous name, Stargate, for a while. And we also should point out, you guys had the name before the movie and before the TV show. Yes. So yeah. you were not copying them. If anything, they could have been copying you. Yes. Um, but in 1987, you transferred out of the program. Uh, yes, I did. What did you do afterward? And that's normal, I gather. Normally, military officers will have like a three-year hitch in a particular right. thing and then transfer. What did you uh, do afterwards? Uh, I uh, took over command of uh, Company A, 527th and my battalion, which uh, uh, was Europe. I uh, was headquartered in, in the Netherlands, and I had about 150 uh, intelligence agents spread throughout the northern two-thirds of Germany in the Benelux. That, uh, that uh, I commanded uh, in 19 different locations. So I was on the road quite a bit. I did that for three years. And uh, then I retired along with my operations sergeant and my first sergeant. All three was retired the same day, got hired by the Allied Command Europe counterintelligence activity, the American unit that provides CI support to uh, NATO to catch the uh, the AFSAM spy. That was uh, the case that's been going on for a while. And we did we did identify him eventually, and then we basically uh, stuck around, uh, spent the next 10 years in Europe uh, traveling around. So we did 13 years in Europe, and we, that's a family. I did. Uh, my last four children all graduated from the same high school which is amazing, uh, did that. Uh, when I retired, came back the next day as a Department of Army civilian, and I was only in charge of myself, and I almost always knew where I was, so I didn't have to answer any stupid questions like I was the commander. And uh, then went to, uh, uh, after 10 years supporting NATO, went to uh, White Sands, New Mexico, for about another 10 years. Yep. Uh, doing traditional counterintelligence work as a civilian. Mm-hmm. Uh, some very exciting things. I had a, had a good time. Uh, my daughter and her husband, uh, who's British, my Irish mother's turning over in her grave, I can see. But uh, they came over from, uh, they were living in England. They came over to New Mexico, had three children in New Mexico, Las Cruces, we were all, yeah. then my uh, uh, daughter and her son-in-law, came here to Elkhart Lake, Wisconsin, which I didn't really bother me much, but they took the grandkids with them. So I retired from the Army, and uh, my wife Sandy and I moved out here. Uh, about six months later, I got bored. And so the intelligence school said, do you want to come to Arizona and teach? We'd love to have you. So I went to Pochuca, Arizona, 
taught for two years. In the meantime, I'd also deployed four times, once to Kuwait, three times to Iraq. So you were involved was, in, the, in the Gulf War in the 1990s and then in the uh, Iraqi freedom campaign and things like that. Uh, my son was. I, I retired on 1 August and Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait on 2 August. I think they said, go Ray, retired. You better go now. So I retired, but I was a civilian working for NATO at the time. So, uh, mm-hmm. but uh, yeah, over the course of, I'd say 2005, I was in Kuwait, six, seven, I was in six, seven, and eight. I was in six, seven, eight, and nine. I was in Iraq. And then 10 and 11, uh, summer of 2012, I taught at the intelligence school. They said, look, at if you like, we have a special program called Stable Shadow. You can go to uh, Afghanistan for 13 months. And I called Sandy and she said, okay. So I went off. I got back. I, uh, I retired on again on 20 September 2013. So I turned 71 and 72 in Afghanistan. Wow. Um, now, one of the questions that a lot of people have about remote viewing is what kind of a phenomenon is it? Um, th- it's obviously not one of the familiar senses that we have, um, but psychic abilities are often understood to be weak, natural human abilities. I sometimes will compare them to our sense of smell. You know, dogs have really sharp senses of smell compared to humans. But humans, we've got this, we do have a sense of smell, but it's a lot weaker. It's not as reliable as a dog's sense of smell. And so it's a kind of weak, but still natural human ability. Now, in the history of Christian thought, there have been thinkers like, including doctors of the church, like St. Augustine and St. Thomas Aquinas, who have been prepared to accept the idea that humans do have weak natural abilities that today we would call psychic. Uh, both St. Augustine and St. Thomas Aquinas, for example, believed in what we would today call precognition. St. Thomas Aquinas called it natural prophecy to distinguish it from the supernatural prophecy that God gives. St. Thomas Aquinas also believed in what today is called psychokinesis, the ability to influence things at a distance. And this was his explanation for the evil eye. Um, Now, even though Christian tradition has been open to the idea of humans having weak natural abilities that we would call psychic, that's not the only theory that's out there. You'll find a lot of people today who sometimes reflexively assume that anything psychic or anything unusual, including aliens, Mm -hmm. must really be demons. Well, you have experience, extensive experience with a psychic phenomenon, remote viewing. Um, Based on your experience, would you say that it's a natural ability or is it demons or is it something else? What do you think? I I think it's a a natural ability. I I think there's a spiritual quality to it. Uh, Yeah. Uh, I don't claim to be a religious person. I like to think I'm a spiritual person. Uh, the say you do the way I mass, remote view. Hmm? You do go to mass though, so you're active. I do go to mass. Yeah. Yes, I uh, attend communion. I, I fast during Lent. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
all which are all part of religion. I think spirituality is, I used to think was my contact with the higher power of God, uh, which which part of it is, but I think much more so it's it's how I interact with other people in the world. And I think that's kind of spiritual. Uh, the, you know, the church is, is, there are, there are a lot of very yeah, miracles are, yeah, of course, we can attribute miracles directly to God uh, by location. But St. Martin of Tours was about five different top places at one time. Yeah. So, uh, well, Fatima, you know, the, the sun going around in the sky, 100,000 people seeing it. Yeah. There's a lot of mysticism in the church. I, uh, yeah, being raised, Catholic and, and still being a practicing Catholic, I uh, the one thing that really upset me that as a youth, and I was you know very very much afraid of going to purgatory or hell. But the one thing I could never understand was we were learning uh, the fifth commandment: "Thou shalt not kill," and that also forbids superstition. And yeah, yeah. Hmm. Sister Mary Mary Michael told me that. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. No, normally, superstition yeah. is lumped under the first commandment. Ah, well, interesting. But uh, the uh, I'm more I'm more Irish Catholic than Roman Catholic. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, I believe in. Yeah. As the as the Irishman said, sure, I don't believe in fairies. I'm an educated man but I know they exist. <laughs> okay. But in yeah. your experience, you would classify remote viewing as a natural ability. Oh, yes. It, it, anybody can remote view. Mm-hmm. It's, it, it, it's just a matter of, of, of learning it. Now, it's like riding a bike. Some people will, yeah, can enter racism with them, and other people can go to the market. But it's everybody has the ability. But yeah, once you learn how to ride a bike, you can ride a bike, but until you learn how to ride it, it's a lot of bruised knees and skinned elbows. Okay. Everybody can do it. Another aspect of how remote viewing works that's not or is reported to work is not well understood um, that involves the nature of the contact that a viewer has with the site. We mentioned a little bit of that earlier about, you know, to what are you pulling information from the site in CRV? Are you going to the site in ERV? Um, I heard you once mention a rumored Chinese set of experiments that could have a bearing on this question of, is there contact between the site and the viewer? Because some people have proposed a view of remote viewing where there is not, where essentially what you're doing is kind of contacting some kind of universal database, like using Google. You know, if I use Google to learn something I don't about Argentina, let's say, I don't have to go to Argentina. And in the same way, some people have said, well, you're using a kind of psychic database to get information about sites, but you're not actually going or contacting that site. Um, What were these Chinese experiments like that you've heard rumors of? Yeah, interesting. Uh, and they kind of changed the way I thought about remote viewing. Uh, I think that my previous thought was your subconscious has access to everything. I think in Eastern religions, it's called the archaic table, where all information is what you need is an address to get it. Uh, I would have thought that, but the Chinese did some some experiments 
with Chinese symbols. Logograms. And, uh, what they would do is they'd write a Chinese symbol on a piece of paper, put it over a piece of rice paper, seal it in a box, and put it in the ground. And then they would target remote viewers on it. And if the remote viewer missed, there was no change. When the remote viewer named the target, they would take it up and they would find that the the Chinese symbol that had been the target had been superimposed onto the rice paper, indicating that somehow the viewer was at the site or had interacted with the site. So, so it would be like uh, kind of like an iron-on transfer if, yes. with a T-shirt. If the viewer makes contact, it transfers yeah. some of the image of the the Chinese yes. symbol on okay, the yeah. piece of rice paper, and that would suggest more than just a database view of remote viewing of some yeah. kind of site so, contact. That's that's kind of left me wondering there. Yeah, mm-hmm. I always thought that you know, basically remote viewing. At that time, I thought was your subconscious learning to talk to your conscious, because yeah, and the subconscious, according to Paul, that deals with eleven and a half million pieces of information mm-hmm. at, at any given moment, and about forty to sixty of those have passed up into the consciousness, mm-hmm. and that's what you deal with the world. But uh, you know, have you ever been going down a freeway or an autobahn and you get the feeling that the guy who's a little bit in front of you is going to pull into your lane? So you back off and he pulls in, no turn signal. I think what happened then was there was enough motivation put on the subconscious that it passed that information up. It got through the alignment, the barrier between the subliminal mm-hmm. and the liminal. There again, and it's you know, if you're out in patrol or something, you get the feeling that something's not right. Somebody's watching me. I think that's the subconscious and shoving that information up. And it's obviously true. We do process a lot more information subconsciously than we're aware of consciously. I did a calculation once, and I realized, you know, there's millions of bits of information coming in through vision alone. And, yes, and we're not perceiving it as millions of things. No, you go crazy, and the same thing with all the receptors on your skin. Sounds, yeah. When you concentrate on something, you shift your focus. Now, I want to be. Uh, I want to make sure we're clear on these Chinese experiments. Um, this has not been published or publicly revealed, as far as I know. This is on a rumor basis. Is that accurate? Yes, and I would go a little farther than a rumor. It was uh, told to me by a very credible source who would have access to the information. Okay. Yeah, but as long as I don't identify him, then it's not classified. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Now, how would you, we mentioned remote viewing is weak in, as a human sense, which is why it's yes. not one of the big five or six. Um, how would you characterize its overall accuracy? Do you have a feel for if someone is a practiced remote viewer, how often do they hit the target or miss it? Or how often is their data good or bad? Uh, yeah, I, I have seen several uh, studies on that, some going as high as 70%, some going as low as 15%. Now, I mentioned the Red Book and on um, projects that we had worked over time. And uh, say the, uh, uh, for example, yeah, they declassified almost all the things we worked. So uh, 
I, I think probably foolishly, but uh, the listening devices in the U.S. Embassy. They all found. Yeah. We uh, we identified those, but there were two or three different viewers viewing that uh, and probably a couple times each. So on the Red Book, 50% of what we what we've been asked to view, we gave to the to the to the customer, CIA, FBI, National Security Council, and they came back saying that this was of exceptionally high value. Not that it was correct, but it was correct and was worthwhile. Now, some of that information we didn't pick up for two or three years. So some of those ones that we didn't get feedback on were, were obviously correct, too. I was down at CIA one time, and I got a uh, 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 the, our contact. Said, oh, Bill, I got something for you. Yeah, this, you guys worked this three years ago, long before I got there. And here's some feedback on it that we had gotten. But three years had passed between the time the project had been worked and the time we got any feedback on it. So uh, working as as a group with various people, I 50 percent is is what I could prove at that time. Yeah. Okay. Now any any individual viewing uh, maybe maybe 70%. The more you view, the more people that view it, the more information you're going to get, obviously. So it's a, uh, it's a hard question to answer anytime. The most, the one thing that I recall Joe McMonagle saying, I think is probably the most important thing for any viewer to keep in mind is that Joe said, I have never been wed to any site I've worked. I've worked and I can let it go. If it's wrong, it's wrong. And move on to the next one. Yeah, it's uh, it's the more people who work it, the more times you work it, the better information you're going to get. Okay. I think. And obviously, if you're having fifty percent of uh, the clients saying this, or the clients saying fifty percent of this was very, very valuable to them. That's way beyond what you would expect by random chance for people just guessing targets they don't know anything about. Yes. uh, The interesting thing is uh, the scientists and the operators. The scientists want to prove remote viewing works. The operators want to gather intelligence. So there is a a built-in conflict there. The, The the first thing a scientist will ask you when you come in with a project is say, was it done double blind? Hmm. Now, no, the viewer was blind. The monitor had some information because if the monitor has a grasp of it, there's three buildings at the site. We're interested in the multi-story building. Okay. Phil doesn't know what the tasking is, but when the viewer gets to the site and says there's multiple buildings here, First of all, the monitor can say, okay, you're on target, which takes away that fear of failure. And second of all, you can say, okay, which which target's important? Well, I don't know which building. Well, let's look at the multi-story one first then. So rather than having to send the viewer out three different times, you can do it on one one shift. Also, if you monitor- don't get so much time on target. Yeah. Also, if the monitor has at least a, some knowledge of what the target is, then it can avoid wasting a two-hour session when he's when right. the viewer is totally off. Yeah, they're 
okay, if you don't have it today, let's let's take a break. We'll come back in an hour and try it again. Many people are very curious about using remote viewing to view exotic targets like Bigfoot or aliens or Atlantis or things like that, or doomsday. Um, should people be particularly cautious with claims of this type, or do you think they're just as reliable as other remote viewing? Nope. I, uh, way beyond the pale, I think. Now, Ed Dames, as a monitor, would pick targets that were esoteric. And I, as a commander, I could allow that. And that practice targets. It was a practice target. Yeah. And you never, usually you didn't know going in if it was practice or if it was real. Yeah. And the, the advantage of Ed picking esoteric targets was that the viewer had to say what was in his mind. Yeah. And the one thing that will kill a remote viewing session is, is not to objectify something. You know, Okay. If I think this, this is an angel, if I don't say that and I just keep going, that's going to, in the back of my mind, that's going to start driving the data. So what that did was that could have any kind of target at all. So you better, whatever came into your mind, get it down. Because otherwise you'll obsess. If you think this is right. an angel and you're trying not to say it's an angel. Like angel, it, yeah. It's like, don't think okay. of an elephant. Well, now that's, that's what yeah. you're going to think of. There it is, yes. But uh, yeah. overall, esoteric targets, uh, yeah. Obviously, the the, uh, the Gulf of San Mateus, Argentina, was an esoteric target. There was some some feedback there because Skip had some information about, about it from, I don't know where he picked it up. The uh, uh, If there's no feedback, then the session is kind of wasted. You, you don't know. And uh, yeah, I suspect that if you view Santa Claus, you start going down that there is a construct of Santa Claus out there, uh, you know, brightly colored suit, uh, 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 oh, a lot okay. of animals involved here, uh, oh. generosity. <laughs> so there are things... Things tend to have a a a a, 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 a tooth fairy. If you view those, you will probably get information on them. Yeah. So. So, Ed, since you mentioned Santa Claus in proximity to Ed Dames, there are two things I have to I have to point out here. Uh, the first one, which you were alluding to, is that um, people's beliefs about or perceptions or ideas about a target that does not exist in reality is thought to be able to bubble through into remote viewing results. So, for example, suppose that Bigfoot does not exist. Now, we all secretly hope he does. But suppose yes. that big, suppose Bigfoot does not exist and a viewer is tasked to view Bigfoot. Well, his if assuming remote viewing works, his subconscious would then go out and say, but actually I've got this whole bunch of people's ideas yep. about this target. So I'll report that instead. Yep. And so you could get a cultural belief in Bigfoot or even one person's belief yep. being presented as if it's a real target when really it's what's called telepathic overlay. Yes. Because you're picking it up from someone else. Now, the other yep. thing about Ed Dames and Santa Claus <laughs> is 
in 1987, just a few months after you left the program, yes. um, the other viewers uh, at at Fort Meade had gotten a little tired of having yeah. uh, of having Ed assign them exotic targets, yeah. and so they decided for Christmas to prank him. And in Chris, at Christmas of 1987, they had different members of the unit. They had some. They got a tasking from, I guess, who, the commander at the time. Mm-hmm. which Ed was going to monitor. And then the first viewer, who I believe may have been Lynn Buchanan, would report, yeah. I'm getting a sense of a of an aircraft, but it's not a conventional <laughs> aircraft. And it seems to be coming over the pole. And then you would have other viewers mm-hmm. fill in more and more of the Santa Claus iconography yeah. in their sessions until it became obvious to Ed that, they were pranking him by having him yes. view Santa Claus. But initially his perception was of a terrorist attack coming over yes. the North pole in an unconventional yeah. aircraft. Uh, I, I did a site for, uh, for Ed one time when I did an ERV and uh, uh, left sanctuary, went to the site and there was this entity there about nine feet tall with wings. I figured, okay, this is one of Ed's ET things, but I told Ed. And so I said, well, go talk to it. So I went up and this thing knew I was there. You know, usually, yeah, even when you're talking to them, they don't really know you're there. But this, so... And there was absolutely zero feeling, no emotion, no caring. And I said, what are you doing here? He said, I was told to be here. And I said, Eddie said he was told to be here. So I said, why he doesn't leave? I said, why don't you leave? And he got mad. And I say he, it was no sex. And so we went back and forth for a while. And he was this thing was becoming upset with me. Didn't know if it was real, whatever, but said, Ed, I'm leaving. I'm coming back. So I came back and the site was the Ark of the Covenant. Oh, so, wow. Yeah, I, I, I forgot. I missed that. Went over to the admin area and I was talking to Paul. And Paul said, well, the Ark of the Covenant's guarded by the cherubim, supposedly. Yeah. But that is that is not my, my concept of an angel. It was just, you know, just obedience. It was told to be there. And if I was questioning it, then whoever told it to be there, it, yeah. yeah. Fascinating. Now, yes. Whether that's, yeah. Once again, it was an esoteric target. There's no feedback. It's, yeah. So but, you would urge people to be cautious when they hear claims yes. about remote viewing things like this. Yes. Yeah. yeah. It, it's, you know, everybody views, you know, Area 51, Area 52, Roswell. And yeah. Um, in, in I know that you did a, a project on Roswell. What sense did you and your viewers get? No, this was uh, not, I should mention this was not military. This was after you left. Right. Uh, yeah. 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 And this was a, uh, I did train a group of viewers in, uh, after the project was unclassified in, in, in the mid nineties, uh, uh, the technology was unclassified. I was in the Netherlands and, uh, I trained, uh, there was a German woman who was married to an American, two Dutch friends of mine, two Belgian friends and a full-blooded Navajo female. Mm-hmm. Strangely enough, none of them spoke English as a first language. They all it was a second language for all of them, or 
for the Belgians and Dutch third or fourth sometimes. But yeah, we did Roswell and uh, it pointed to it being real. And anything more than that, I, I, yeah, I wouldn't by, do. It. By real, do you mean yeah, extraterrestrial it, or paranormal or just something? Things happened, happened there. Yeah, there, there were things happened there. There was a cover up. Uh, yeah. But more than that, I, I wouldn't go into. It, it, it was, uh, uh, and obviously I had some preconceived notions and I was the monitor. So I, I, uh, it was inconclusive okay and even conventional uh explanations would say well if it was a classified mogul balloon train there was a cover up because they didn't admit that interesting the uh the german woman i trained i uh also trained my wife sandy who's part native american Mm -hmm. and so uh I did Custer's last stand as a target one time. And uh, I had a very difficult time getting the German woman to, to go on to it. And when she, you know, blood. So uh, but Sandy went right to it. She did, did, had no problem watching soldiers being killed hmm. yeah, by Indians. They're uh-huh. Native Americans is the correct term now. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Okay. So one person's... Uh, Hard target is another person's. Yeah, that all depends on, I guess, where you're coming from. So, speaking of uh, of soldiers and battles, um, at the time we're recording this, the U.S. has just recently withdrawn troops from Afghanistan. As someone who has uh, served in Afghanistan, um, is there anything you'd like to, any kind of commentary you'd like to offer, anything you'd like to say uh, about that? Yeah, it's. Uh, it's been a difficult time. I'm, uh, I say, eight years ago is when I got back from Afghanistan after 13 months there. You were at Bagram uh, itself at one point. Yes, I was at Bagram. Uh, I was in our, our regional command east, which is the eastern portion of, uh, of Afghanistan. The uh, the one we never got the surge to because we didn't get uh, enough people. But uh I'm in contact with a lot of the people I've served with, uh, and there's been a lot of, you know, uh, texting back and forth, Facebooking back and forth. It's, it's, yeah, we, uh, yeah, we all know people who died there. And uh, then it's been eight years, but I know a lot of the Afghans that I, that I worked with are, 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 Probably a lot are in trouble, and it, it, so it's it's a very uh, yeah. I I do have a hollow, just a hollow feeling in the pit of my stomach. Uh, you know, thinking yeah, yeah. People I met in bazaars, and I know that there were people I go to the bazaars shop at regularly, and keep uh, sources. Uh, I I did the counterintelligence validation on all CI on all collection sources in the Tarsis. So got to know a lot of people who uh, uh, probably aren't, if they're still alive, they're in trouble. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's, uh, yeah. I, I uh, encourage the listeners to keep them in and both Afghans and our, our uh, people who are still there yeah. in their prayers. Yes, if you're a praying person, I would ask for your prayers uh, uh, from 9-11 onwards for the last 20 years. All the people who've been affected by it, families, families of people who have yeah, 
And uh, obviously, uh, veteran suicide is a major issue. Mm-hmm. And uh, I would I would hope this is not going to make it worse. It's, uh, yeah. And fortunately hey. for anybody who's tempted by thoughts of suicide, there is help yeah. available. Yes, there is. And, and it's the... I've had suicides in my extended family and the family never recovers. The, there, there is, uh, so very sad. And to think that, 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 yeah, the hopelessness of, of, of the situation, the, uh, I, I, the church tends to look on suicide now different than it did back when I was, uh, you know, 50 years ago. Now it's somebody who takes their own life is, is probably not in a, a sane state of mind. Right. But, and the church acknowledges that even in the last moments of life in ways right. that we may not be able to perceive, God can still reach someone with their, with their mercy. So there's always hope, but also that's not the answer to if someone nope, is suffering. Nope. And, and it, 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 it's taking your pain and putting it on a bunch of other people. And it's sad that people feel that that there's nothing else they can do. Yeah. So to uh, to conclude on a bit of a happier note, what are you doing these days? Oh, well, I I keep fairly busy. I I work 15 to 20 hours a week in my uh, my daughter and her son-in-law have a coffee shop here. It's a coffee sandwich shop. And uh, they've been incredibly busy since uh, they both back up. We during the, uh, the the quarantine we went to to go sandwiches. So uh, that keeps me in contact with a lot of the younger people. I coached my my daughter's soccer team for six seasons, and so uh, I know a lot of the. Uh, well, yeah, now they're yeah, eighteen, nineteen years old. So. I uh, I and the wife both volunteer out at a drug and alcohol rehab facility. Uh, spend a couple nights a week out there, and uh, I I do not counseling, but I I share my experience, strength, and hope with uh, the people there, and uh, uh, that maintain contact with a lot of them mm-hmm. after they've gotten out. And so you've mentioned kids and grandkids. I know some folks will be curious. How many do you have of each? Okay. We have, have six children. Mm-hmm. I have uh, 10 grandchildren. Uh-huh. Yep. Yep. We, uh, no, it's interesting. And uh, I, uh, a friend of mine, uh, friend, an acquaintance of mine was a uh, child pediatric, uh, 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 oncologist uh, out of Houston Children's Hospital. And he said that uh, uh, most of his patients died, but he maintained contact with the family. 70% of the families have been contacted by their children after the child had died. Oh, we, uh, yeah, we have a son who died uh, at three months. Yeah. But uh, at Fort Huachuca and uh, I've, I've been contacted by him twice since he died. Uh huh. When my wife passed on, I I I didn't perceive any contacts from her um, because, and I think because I had 
I wasn't in a position where I mean, I was grieving, but I like wasn't doubting about her. And so I but other people who were around me whose faith wasn't as strong as mine, they reported being contacted by her. Um, And I think it was her way of helping them. And because my faith was strong, I didn't need that. But um, but indeed, there are a lot of people when someone passes on who report being contacted on the way out. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So um, is there anything else you'd like to cover or anything you'd like to plug before we close up? Uh, No, Uh, I see Sunday. I I leave for uh, uh, Cedar city, Utah. Mm -hmm. Paul and I are going to be teaching a course, Paul Smith. Uh, We have a couple of students coming over from Germany be going through very happy there we just had the remote viewing conference uh in Rhinebeck, mm-hmm. uh the new york right irva international remote viewing association yeah, association wow. so if people are interested you can go online and uh and find out about irva mm-hmm. uh, org. yes that's about it it's uh life is life is good yeah it's uh nothing but nothing happens in god's world by mistake so it's it's yeah okay it's a wonderful life life is hard but it's good well thank you very much major ray Uh, on behalf of all the mysterious world listeners and viewers we really appreciate you joining us today well thank you for giving me the opportunity i thoroughly enjoyed it jimmy and that's the end of our interview today Jimmy, is there anything in it that you'd like to follow up on? I wanted to follow up on Bill's experience encountering an angel when viewing the Ark of the Covenant. There are several things that could explain that. First, as you may remember from Raiders of the Lost Ark, the golden lid on the Ark of the Covenant had two small gold statuettes of cherubim on it. And if you want to look that up in the Bible, it's in Exodus 25, verses 18 to 22. Cherubs, or cherubim, by the way, aren't the little baby-like angels you see in paintings. Those are different. Those are called puti. Uh, Real cherubim are more primal and fearsome than that. In any event, the statuettes uh, could have been responsible for what Bill perceived. On the other hand, the cherubim on the ark were small, and what he perceived was much larger. He estimated what he saw was nine feet tall. But when Solomon built the temple in Jerusalem, he built two enormous gold-covered statues of cherubim, which he put in the Holy of Holies, standing over and symbolically guarding the Ark of the Covenant. That's mentioned, if you want to look it up, in 1 Kings chapter 6, verses 23 to 28. And these statues were 10 cubits, or 15 feet tall, not too far off, an impression of something being nine feet tall. So these large statues also could have been responsible for what Bill saw. However, third possibility, well, the Ark of the Covenant is a holy object that was important to Israel and to God. And so when it existed or wherever it might exist today, God might have actual cherubim guarding it. And that could have been what Bill perceived. Finally, a fourth possibility, as we discussed in the interview, people's mental impressions and beliefs about a target are thought to influence what a remote viewer perceives, especially if the target isn't real Um, or, you know, even if it is. So since lots of people have beliefs about the arc, those could be responsible. 
I don't have any conclusion here, but I find Bill's perception of the target fascinating. And once again, yes, we will be doing the Ark of the Covenant in the future. Excellent. So anything else you'd like to say before we close? Just a thanks again to Paul Smith for helping put me in touch with Bill. And a special thanks to Major Ray for a really fascinating two-part interview. Yes, excellent. Thank you very much. So, Jimmy, what do we have for further resources this time? We'll have a link to Paul Smith's History of Stargate, a book called Reading the Enemy's Mind. Also, a link to an article, including a video on uh, his return home from Afghanistan in one of his retirements. A transcript of his description. This is his original remote viewing results of the San Matias UFO incident. Also, Paul Smith has an article called uh, UFOs and Remote Viewing that also discusses the Gulf of San Matias incident. So you can read uh, that article. We'll also have articles by Paul on controlled remote viewing and extended remote viewing, as well as information about General William O'Doom and also a suicide helpline because that subject came up and there is help. Suicide is not the answer. There are ways to get help and feel better. And then lastly, we'll have a um, a link to the webpage of IRVA. That's the International Remote Viewing Association that we also mentioned in the interview. Excellent. So, Jimmy, what do we have for mysterious headlines this time? Well, I thought it was uh, appropriate since we were talking about UFOs in this episode to give a bit of an update on the UFO situation with regard to the government, because as everybody knows, since 2017, there have been some revelations that, yes, the government and the military have been looking into some UFO encounters, although they use the alternative term UAP for unidentified aerial phenomena. And uh, earlier this year, Congress tasked the right people with collating and producing a report on this. And when it came out, it was good but for what it did, but it was very minimal. Well, Congress is not happy with the way the Defense Department has been uh, proceeding in this matter. And so there are new pieces of legislation that uh, have been advanced. One of them, we'll hear about a New York Senator introducing elements. These are uh, elements that are supposed to go into or have gone into the annual defense reauthorization bill, which is a must-pass bill to keep the Defense Department running. And um, Senator, a senator from New York has introduced elements that would require greater UFO transparency from the relevant agencies. It would also, within the Defense Department, create and it, or it would create a uh, a new body to oversee all of this information, and it mandates additional reporting to Congress and the American public on a regular basis. Also, additional elements that are in this uh, proposed new legislation uh, would authorize rapid response teams for UFO or UAP events, as well as saying, hey, guys, if we can't make this tech, Let's reverse engineer it. And so you have actually, even though there are rumors that reverse engineering has been done on on UFOs, this would actually make it official. If you get this tech or if you learn about it, let's figure out how to do it. 
So lots of interesting stuff. Congress cracking the whip a little bit to get more uh, responsiveness on the UFO UAP issue. So what a dramatic change from what it was like before 2017. No kidding. Uh, it's a good thing we have politicians telling our Defense Department that they should reverse engineer uh, secret technology if they come across it. Yeah. <laughs> Way to go. All right. Those are excellent headlines. So that's it from us. What are your theories about Major Ray's dramatic remote viewing experiences, the mass UFO abduction, Roswell, and the Ark of the Covenant? You can let us know by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World Facebook page. You can send an email to mysterious at sqpn.com, send a tweet to at mys underscore world, or by calling our mysterious feedback line at 619-738-4515. That's 619-738-4515. So, Jimmy, what's our next episode going to be about? Next week, we're going to Africa in the 1980s. Uh, in the country of Rwanda, there were reports of the Virgin Mary appearing as Our Lady of Cabejo, and she gave a dramatic warning about some terrible events that later followed. So we'll be hearing all about that. Excellent. Folks, be sure to sh uh, follow Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Tune in your favorite podcast app or on YouTube at the Jimmy Akin YouTube channel or the SQPN YouTube channel. We should make sure to hit the bell to get notifications. You can find links to Jimmy's resources from our discussion and links to the mysterious headlines on our show notes at sqpn.com slash mysterious. And remember to help us continue to produce the podcast. Please visit sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World is also brought to you by Fearvento Law, PLLC, specializing in adult guardianships and conservatorships, probate and estate planning matters, accepting clients throughout Michigan, taking into account your individual health care, financial, and religious needs. Visit FearventoLaw.com, F-I-O-R-V-E-N-T-O Law.com. Until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Tom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World on StarQuest. If you've enjoyed Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, you'll also enjoy another StarQuest Network show, The Secrets of Stargate. Find it wherever you can find podcasts or at sqpn.com slash stargate.